welcome to How to Save the World. And I'm finally here again in person with Tim. Isn't it so much nicer to oh, be back in a room and to see human beings? I know. Oh, I'm Waveney. <laughs> and I'm Tim. Yay! And yeah. This is How to Save the World, by the way, a podcast about sustainability. Excellent. People who are trying to get into it. Yeah, it's that being able to connect with your own power to make a difference. That's what we're all about. Indeed. And what we find is that we all get a bit down and we all get a bit focused, I guess, on the bad news of of all things sustainable and all things future. So every so often, Tim and I like to throw the good news at you and um, just kind of put a bit of positive news in there. Critical. We've got an entire information infrastructure geared towards giving you negative news all the time. It is not the full reality of what we're living through. There's a lot of good stuff happening that you're not hearing about. So we like to take these opportunities to let you know mm. what and some of those yeah, things are. And it's not like some meager little examples either. It's like um, we've got a, a bias, a negative bias in our brains towards negativity. And the news itself, like maybe feeding on that, um, you know, these gradual awesome things that happen aren't news, you know, and it's not some conspiracy. It's just that we don't tend to tune into it doesn't so, sound newspapers yeah so that's what we're doing now we're consciously tuning in and, and yeah. balancing it up we're getting those good vibes um i've got uh i've got two or three yeah i reckon i got three little bits here i reckon i've got three so tim and i when we do this we don't we don't tell each other what no. we've planned and, we sometimes uh, double up accidentally yeah and usually it's quite sort of serendipitous actually mm. yeah would so, you like to kick off would you like me yeah, to no, dive in? I'll, I'll, Please. I'll kick off um, I am just going to kick off with high-level highlights, bullet points of some of the positive side of the the detrimental COVID um, that's you know taken our world and given it a good old kick this year, um, and still is. Isn't that interesting in New Zealand? Here, I'm almost talking in the past tense. I know. So it's like I've got to remind myself we're in the middle of this. Yes. Hand sanitizer. Hand sanitizer. Hand sanitizer. <laughs> Um, okay, so bicycle sales are up, like, dramatically. So cool. uh, less cars, fear of public transport, uh, you know, all of these things are coming together, and so people are getting on the bikes to get I around. I love that, because that is something where if you've bought the bike, that means you're going to use the bike. Exactly, because changing a behavior is all preloaded. The hardest part's all beforehand, so that's so cool that oh, people are getting that's great. In. Another cool thing is, oh, this is personal observation, I saw flour in the convenience food section of my local supermarket. That is very positive. Hey, funny, eh? I was like, what? This is like this this, this spot. It's right where they, you know, put their eye candy for you. Oh, I didn't know I needed that, but I'm going to grab it. Well, when everyone has resorted to being a bread maker. Yeah, everyone's into it now. It's awesome. Um, Amsterdam has decided to leverage its post-coronavirus recovery spending to become the world's first city to officially adopt the donut model of economics. Oh, that's fantastic. We've talked about this. It was explored heavily in the movie that we watched, 2040. Yeah, it's um, Kate Raworth, who's a UK economist, who has come up with a succinct genius way of explaining how we need our economic system going forward to meet everybody's needs but within that sort of golden window of um, the planet's capacity to support us so it's just a way better way of explaining uh, an economy's worth than a gdp that's really exciting stuff Isn't it? like uh, yes. I, I, it, it's one of those things that 
um, I heard a lot about and it looked quite fantastic and that it wasn't going to ever happen. If you can hear some little scratching, by the way, that's my dog trying to join in on the podcast. It's little Rufus. Not the gremlins trying to get in. But to hear that a major international city has actually adopted it so that it can see if this thing's going to work and then hopefully be a beacon to other places adopting it. Yeah, that is and actually, tremendous. a little bit later on in my good news, I've got an example of a country that had a bit of uh, groundbreaking legislation and almost instantly other nations used it in cases too. Um, so it had the snowball effect that was awesome. So anyway, so that sort of thing had happened. Um, Europe's green energy companies are emerging as shelter for investors in market fallout from the coronavirus, which is an interesting one. Basically, that green energy sector is actually coming out quite strongly. Um, through this crisis and there's also a positive feedback loop that's um, sort of been discovered all over the world for solar panels with their less pollution from the old energy sources oh, they got course. shut down they're, they're more they're Their operating more efficiently is going yeah, up. yeah yeah because yeah. the sky is clean and because the panels are clean yeah right so that's uh, been a weird little unexpected yeah. one over to you tim that's very cool i've got some solar stuff later on but i wanted to start with um, again, I think everything that we're talking about at the moment that's happening, it's inescapable. It's within the context of COVID-19. And um, unfortunately, this is sort of in the context of a really tragic story that's been unfolding in America about their meat processing plants. Um, their big in, yeah, oh, industrial yes. slaughterhouses. I mean, yeah, and yeah. It's historically an industry that employs a lot of vulnerable workers, a lot of immigrant workers. It's very dangerous work. It's very poorly paid. Um, and COVID-19 has just been ripping through these facilities. Um, but there's been a, a, a sort of quite heartening trend, which is that faux meat, meat alternatives that are made out of plant proteins, have been skyrocketing in sales. So there's been this huge consumer trend wow. of people heading um, in that direction now. So this is stuff like Impossible Foods, um, Beyond Meat, uh, Sunfed Chicken, which is the, the chicken that's got pea protein, here in New Zealand, it's up almost 300% in America in sales. So wow. That's an Just in the last couple of months or... <coughs> Correct. Yep. Wow. <laughs> Excuse me. Yeah. Um, and that's an increase of four times. And uh, that's not to say that meat sales didn't go up as well, because they did. Like, all food sales have gone up quite significantly during this period. But meat sales went up 45% for the same period, and um, uh, alternative meats went up... F uh, almost 300%. So huge. The New York Times has been doing some reporting on this and um, they have said that it's around people's concerns uh, partially from meat coming from these facilities, but it's also been the one final push that these faux meats have kind of a little bit been on some people's radars. Um, and this has been the thing that's taken them over the edge to give it a try. Just their... like video technology. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Could we do a meeting over? Oh no, oh, we'll meet. No. Oh well, we have to. Oh, this ain't so bad. Yeah. Um, and the big producers like Impossible and Beyond are reporting these huge sales increases. They're employing more people. And um, this is sort of me extrapolating now, but I suspect there'll be this. Well, there's an anecdote here which will prove it. But there's this huge feedback loop um, that's going to happen with. Increased revenue means increased ads, means more people normalise this or get exposed to the concept of alternative meats. And I think the sales are just going to go up and up and up and up. And because um, the meat alternatives, are it's almost a technology as well as a food stuff, the efficiency of making them will increase over time. So it will actually get cheaper and less resource dependent to make the equivalent amount of food. They talked about a, a woman named... Um, 
uh, Monia, who's 47, and she was doing a grocery shopping online um, at Instacart. She's a pescatarian, but her family eats meat. And um, she just got shown an ad for Beyond and didn't know what it was and decided to buy it. And now her and her 16-year-old <laughs> son are just chomping down on these not-meat burger patties. Mm. And, um, yeah. That's awesome. Is, he, is that it? Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. I um, had my own thing in coronavirus as well um, during lockdown uh, around bread, uh, around flowers and discovering um, through, you know, it was harder to find the flower in the supermarket and lots of other people were experiencing the same thing. People were researching stuff and through it I found a couple of online organic granaries. Uh, so it's organic and it's grain grown right here in New Zealand. Oh, wow. Yeah. And and cheaper than uh, what you can get it at other in other places. So, like, as in if you're... Where can you get this stuff? Um, I'll put it in the notes. Great. Uh, Millmore Downs mm-hmm. uh, in Canterbury and Whole Grain Organics. Um, both really good. Like, I am stoked to find awesome. those guys. Yeah. Oh, that's so yeah. good. Um, so, my next piece of good news is that the... Big picture, and this is cool, this is our synergy thing that we often have with uh, good news, is the big picture for renewables is looking very good. Um, the Guardian recently reported that renewable sources made up 72% of new energy added in 2019. That's globally. Wow. Exciting. That's a break, record-breaking figure. Um, and that means that we're now up to one-third of global power now produced by renewable sources like wind and solar. It seems like that happened really quick. Yeah. Like wind and solar have been around for quite a while, but globally they constituted such a small percent. I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but such a small amount of total mm, output. Mm, but mm. That, wow, a third. It's so cool. Over that time, um, so last year, I should say, renewables grew two and a half times more than the fossil fuel industry on totals, to give you some perspective. So, um, and that's driven by all sorts of things like demand, um, but also oil insecurities and tech developments. Um and I've got a cool example of a tech development. Um, there's been a new development in wind turbine tech that could see them on our roofs for the first time. Oh, wow. Because there's really good reasons why we don't all have wind to Like solar panels are taking mm. off domestically, but um, they basically, the tech for them is still, they're inefficient in the small areas, mm. small um, scale. They, vi- they vibrate horrendously. I've heard stories of, hard out hippies that have put them up and their neighbours have taken them to court because nobody can sleep. Um, yeah, and they're big. And So anyway, a new company called Aeromine uh, has a turbine system that's, you're going to love this, Tom, actually. They're using the same, the same curved shape of an aeroplane wing that's called an airfoil. Mm-hmm. And they alter the air pressure on either side of it, which ultimately produces lift. And so what Aeromine have done to these airfoils have hitched two together so that as they spin round, the flow from one airfoil amplifies the other airfoil and they become more powerful. Huh. <laughs> so um, they don't generate, because, because of that. I'm they- getting a mental picture of the Tour de France and you know how they get in the, they create oh, yeah, like the slipstream. a slipstream. Uh, yeah, slipstream. Mm. It's like they're creating a slipstream for the other blade. They're both doing it to each other. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. So it means that, uh, basically it means that this technology could be a game changer. They're still really early mm. um, phase of it and I'll um, 
I'll put the link to this in the notes so you can read more about it. But um, basically, they don't generate the same amount of vibrations or noise. Um, they're actually less noisy than a ventilation fan. They don't require specialized parts or tools, and they're easy to fix, which means they're a really good option for developing countries. Cool. Mm. And they're also really simple. Their simple design actually means that they're really less likely to break down, which is really important for the this industry because that has been a real sticking point yeah the, yeah you know, the world's full of these enormous turbines and when they break up there they're almost you know in many cases they're just not viable to fix it's yeah heaps of ones that have never been fixed um on that actually i haven't seen it and i can't even god damn remember the name off the top of my head but the new michael moore produced film have you seen the stuff online about um, this no i don't know it's, no i haven't seen any new well stuff from him little divergence for our good news for just one moment so you might have seen I, I really should bring the title of the movie up i'll go google it in a second but there's a movie that's just um come out recently which is supposedly like lifting the lid on how bad renewables actually are and it is getting absolutely destroyed by scientists or just any f- people who know anything about the current state of renewables um, so if you if you're getting sent some links from uh, some of your friends or family going, oh, renewables aren't that great. See, look at this movie that's just come out that proves this and this and this. That movie is getting thoroughly debunked. Um, apparently, almost all of the information that's in it is based on completely outdated numbers and technology, mm. which has mm. not been relevant for two or three years at mm. least. And they're just painting a weird picture of because um, the guy who made it uh, claims to be an environmentalist, and it's produced executively produced by Michael Moore, and it's just gotten absolutely slammed for being Bad move. full of BS. Uh, so heads up on that. I've got some good news about bees. Hey, that is oh. We love the bees. We love the bees. We and love it's the bees. Bad news for bees. I know. We love the bees so much that we are going to be doing a bee episode very soon with some bee experts. Um, little teaser. Something that's coming up on the show. But for right now, um, first of all, you know, we love the bees because they're critical. They are absolutely essential to the ecosystems all over the world. I read recently for our survival that they've been declared the if we had to pick the most important species. Really? Yeah. Bees. Yep. Wow. Didn't know that. Knew they're important. Number one. <laughs> so, so the humans say. The scientific community has been worried about the declining bee populations that we've seen for a long time, and is uh, it called uh, bee colony collapse? I think is the like name that they've given to it. There's a few suspects. They mainly concluded that it was Roundup. (laughs) Um, Mm. But part of that picture is the fact that um, there's declining flowers and plants that they need to survive in these environments. These researchers at the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology in Zurich have just discovered that with bumblebees, they've got this incredible behavior that, that we have not ever observed before. And it's like a survival trait. When they're in an environment where um, they've got a nest where pollen is scarce and the plants nearby aren't flowering, they puncture the leaves and it stimulates early flowering from the plant. (gasps) So the researchers found that the plants would flower on average 30 full days earlier than if they weren't nibbled on by the bees. And we've never seen this before. This has just been found out. It's a behavior we've never um, observed before in nature. Uh, they've been doing it the whole time. We just didn't notice. This is from uh, an article reporting on the study in Scientific America. 
study co-author Consuelo de Mores, a chemical ecologist at um, the Swiss Institute of Technology in Zurich, says she and her colleagues were observing one species of bumblebee in a totally unrelated laboratory experiment when they noticed the insects were damaging plant leaves and wondered why. Initially, we wanted to see if they were removing the tissue or feeding on the plants or taking leaf material to the nest, um, she said, and because previous research had shown stress could induce plants to flower, the team was wondering whether the bees might be creating the blooms on demand. So they um, created a test and they tried to replicate the results themselves by puncturing the leaves manually with some small tools to emulate the mandibles that the bees have. They have mandibles? Is that the thing? They're little teethy things. Nice. <laughs> um, and they were semi-successful. They did get the flowers to bloom a little bit earlier than they normally would have, but not nearly as well as the bumblebees did. So they think the bumblebees are using a combination of um, chemicals in their mouths and just the simple act of puncturing them to make them flower more. And the results are being very like welcomed in the scientific community because the um, inference is that the bees might be a little bit stronger than we first suspected in terms of regaining um, their environments around them to sustain their growth mm. and their their life. So that's really cool. Wow. And it means they're not, not quite as vulnerable as um, as we thought, which I'm is so good. I'm going to you fun fact of the Good News episode. That was really cool. <laughs> what you got for me next, Wave? Um, nature is being awarded legal rights. Out bloody time. Hey, so I think we've probably all heard here and there of. We've some- got it in New Zealand. We had a landmark case. You are onto it because I was um, researching this and I came across an article that said that there's been seven countries in the world that have adopted legal rights for nature and, and just how pivotal that all was. And as I was like, are we one? Is, 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 it, is, it, is it New Zealand? Are we? Because I was, I was. That's what I was thinking. And but then I was like, oh, I don't know. Maybe I've got that wrong. But um, no, absolutely, New Zealand's right in the middle of it all. And um, so what it is is that we've got legal systems, must be millions of them. I don't know around the world. You've got your regional ones, so your councils. You've got your, all of your national, and you've got all of your international laws that we've constructed. All of it has been constructed historically to protect the rights of people. It's a human system for humans, but something is shifting and it does feel quite significant. Like perhaps we're on a cusp of some sort of global historic recognition. And I mean, in terms of the Western world, obviously other um, cultures are well out ahead here, but um, for nature to be awarded uh, legal rights. So um, already there's been a number of ecosystems around the world that have been declared living entities um, by federal courts or Supreme Courts. Um, many have been granted personhoods um, and that allows us to codify and manage and basically just protect that natural environment and in our legal system without that um, this is how, where we get our externalities from you can dump it into a river because it doesn't have any rights because mm. it, we can't even though it's sort of obvious it's on an intuitive captured. level legally it's sort of been just this loophole um, how can you award rights to something if it's not an entity um so uh i the matador network uh, which is a huge online community recently highlighted these seven countries and i'm just gonna whirl through them um or through some of them um and in 2008 ecuador made history by becoming the first country in the world to ratify a constitution um to amend it to include nature's rights so it's in their constitution 
through cool and then they tested that in 2011 when there was this river that had lots of debris being thrown into it and the rights of the river were upheld uh, and that was a landmark case it was the first time ever that this had happened um, so that was 2008 so we're looking eight uh, 12 years ago and then big jump to 2017 where New Zealand yes uh, made this is not a New Zealand article, because you know how sometimes when you're yeah, reading yeah. these things, you're like, oh, it's just because <laughs> New Zealanders wrote it. But no, here we are being quoted. Um, we made the news internationally for granting the Whanganui River, the legal rights of a human being. Now the river, or Te Awa Tupuna, is treated as a Maori ancestor, as an indivisible, indivisible and living whole, which includes not only its waters, but also the riverbed and its flora and the subsoil and the airspace. And can I say, you can kind of tell, because I did that river trip um, earlier this, was that this year? End of last year? No, earlier this year, I think, in summer, um, with a friend of mine, we did the five-day rowing trip down that river, and it is absolutely stunning. It's probably the best, like, tramping trip I've done, and I love getting mm. out and doing the tramping stuff, mm. but it was so good. It's a great walk. It's the only one that's not a walk. <laughs> <laughs> in joke. Um, Highly recommend for the Kiwis, it. yeah. Um, so in 2017, Colombia, um, they took it through to their constitutional court to approve the legal rights for one of their rivers, and they cited the precedent set in New Zealand. Oh, wow. So this ha- and so it's actually there's been a cascade of cases, and... Um, the court's decision was a major win for the river and the ecosystems, um, which were being threatened by mining. But they didn't stop there. And um, in the following year, the Supreme Court also acknowledged the legal rights of the Amazon's ecosystems. Um, and now, uh, legally, it's the, the Amazon's ecosystem in Colombia is entitled to protection and maintenance and restoration. And then... Interest, perhaps the biggest achievement of them all, very quietly over the past five years, there's been dozens of communities across the United States that have been codifying and protecting the rights of nature, you know, right underneath quite a difficult yeah. uh, <laughs> situation. And the last one I'm just going to shout out to is last year in 2019, Bangladesh Supreme Court proclaimed all of the rivers in Bangladesh to be alive and entitled to legal rights. And Bangladesh is, of course, famously home to several hundred rivers. It's kind of a nation of rivers that are absolutely essential to the lives of the locals that live there. So nice little, you can see that it's momentum that point and stuff, that, yeah, isn't that it? cascading effect. Yeah. Um, Oh, thank you so much to Ecuador and us for leading the way. Mm. And then it it really does, like, this is why I think the role of activists and campaigners is so important because it's, like, so much hard work that no one sees and it, I'm sure, feels like just smashing your head against a brick wall and then you get that little crack in the defences. Yes. And then suddenly someone else is over here and they see your win and they sort of emulate what you're doing and then suddenly you've got two people and then boom, you get yep. this big wave. That's really exciting mm. and very cool and could not come fast enough. Okay. <laughs> My last little um, bit of good news for you, Wave, um, speaking of America being a complicated place, it's it's from the States. It's from Las Vegas, Nevada. Hey, Vegas. Sin City. Got a soft spot for Vegas. Have you been? Yeah. Oh, when did you go? Um, oh, that's a good question. Two, oh, 2006, I think. 
Good times. Great times. Awesome. <laughs> I've always wanted to go to Vegas. I haven't been yet. Um, they're about to build. They're about to start building because they have just got approval from the federal government to start work on a $1 billion solar farm. Um, and it's called the Gemini Solar Project. It will be the single largest solar project in the United States to date and the eighth largest on planet Earth. Wow. It's expected to deliver power to 260,000 homes, and it might even be generating so much power that they expect they'll be able to sell it to Southern California as well when it's Is in Is this peak. a municipal project? Uh, I, I don't know, but I imagine just knowing what I know about the um, environment, the market environment down there. It's usually like a what in New Zealand we call a PPP, a, a, private, a private public. What is the third P? Can't remember, but it's like a shared. Oh, yeah. yeah, it is. Yeah, I think it is. Yeah, oh. yeah, nice. Yeah. So it'll probably be like a shared thing. Um, but uh, yeah, so that's pretty cool. It's going to pump seven hundred and twelve million dollars into Nevada's local economy. They reckon and provide 2,000 uh, jobs directly and indirectly. But most importantly, they're going to have a big old solar farm that's going to be producing renewable power um, to people in Nevada and California. They're, it's like with every huge-scale project, industrial project, it's not like 100% good. <laughs> there's there's certainly some trade-offs for that, and there has been, um, I'd be remiss of me not to note, there has been some concerns for the desert tortoise which Aww. is in that region and that's where it, its home is. Um, I had a little look into this and the campaigners like have explicitly stated that it's not going to threaten them as a species, but it's certainly not good or helpful for them. Um, but on the renewables front and the more positive front as well, I also stumbled on this um, report. This is just a little tiny little story that didn't get much pick up, but it's kind of cool. The University of Queensland have been using a Tesla power pack. So, like, in the renewables infrastructure, right, it's it's all well and good for us to have, like, turbines on the roof if, if your tech that you were talking about yeah. before comes to fruition. Or right now we've got a lot of solar panels around. But the big criticism um, that's always been leveled at renewables is that what happens if the sun's not shining at that time of the year? What do you do in winter? What happens when the wind stops? <laughs> And the answer is always, well, A, it's always windy somewhere, but let's not get into that. But B, it's battery technology to store the energy when it's at its peak so you can use it later. So batteries have always been like this really important critical bit of infrastructure that the technology has actually been evolving like pretty quickly over the last decade for. Have you got some good news on batteries, Tim? Because... It's a specific one. I'm always so keen to hear good battery news. Well, this is from Tesla, who make the cars. um, And we can get them in New Zealand now. They're called power packs. And it's basically they make a wall in your house out of a battery. So you couple them with solar panels on the roof, and that's how you can power your whole home. And you can also... Um, feed your energy back into the power grid and actually get some money for it. So am I right in saying that, because I think I've heard of someone doing this, that you can take the batteries from a car that aren't strong enough for the car anymore and then rather than chucking them, you can use them in your home? I mean, in theory, I don't know about these DIY (laughs) projects because the the ones that I'm talking about is like Tesla, they got some dudes who come in, install it all. Okay, it's a separate separate thing. Let's just erase that. You don't need to get your hands dirty. But what I'm talking about specifically in this news article is a specific power pack, a huge one that Tesla made for the uh, the University of Queensland. And they only put it in last December, but... It cost a lot of money to install it, 
and they were expecting it would kind of pay for itself over time but because they're a university they were a bit of a test case and they wanted to see now i don't fully understand the mechanisms of this but it was being used to like smooth out their energy grid in that part of australia because it's very volatile um so the battery i guess was like taking capacity off the grid when there was a lot being generated and putting it back on um and it has some incredible uh capacity to be able to charge and discharge really 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 quickly um it has completely outperformed their expectations it outperformed their forecast by 54 percent so far uh, which means the battery is going to pay for itself within eight years and it's got a total lifespan of 15. So they're going to make money on it, um, which was not expected. It's on path to deliver $245,000 in revenue to the university this year through its role in, in being part of the central wow. grid. Yeah. $250,000 in one year. Yeah. Wow. Crazy, eh? Yeah. <clears throat> so... A very cool, very specific little example of how these battery technologies are really changing over time. Battery tech didn't change for a long time, mm. and it's it's gotten a lot better in the last 10, 15 years, and it's been a key part of getting these renewables as part of like a normal energy mix in a city and in an urban environment. I'm excited. I really want to get one. Yeah. <laughs> Got to get a house first, but <laughs> I don't know if the landlord will let me install um, solar panels in a Tesla power bank in his wall actually i had someone visit us the other day who um arrived with an electric car that needed to be charged and he plugged it in you know it's all it's all great but i was like huh isn't that interesting it's like kind of arriving with like an empty petrol can yeah, <laughs> yeah it's like totally. is this our future he, he definitely should have been giving you a few bucks i reckon i got no idea how much it would cost to um fill up a tesla but it's cool fun. that he could yeah very cool actually very cool we're very happy but it was just the first time that it had happened and it made me um, clock. What's the etiquette here? Yeah, oh, this is a new thing we have to negotiate <laughs> now. Yeah, very cool. Hey, um, so that's the end of our good news episode, which turned out to be a bit of a good news around the energy sector, mm. I think. That was a big highlight. And um, that is good news because it's such a massive part of getting our future sorted, massive part of energy. That in our soil microbes, I reckon. I don't know. That, and then it. we, then we and just the got to, well, then Maybe those are the top three. We've got to sort out logistics, but all of that has sure. sort of reduced Four a things. lot in the we'll short get that term. Sort so. of fine. <laughs> and um, we have decided that we're going to be doing end of season one. Um, it's coming up in four weeks. Yeah, and, which um, will mark an entire year of How to Save the World. So we've been putting out weekly episodes for 52 weeks nonstop, which is pretty good. I'll say. It feels good. I yeah. think we should pat ourselves on the back for I that. I think so too. Yeah. So um, basically we're we're having a break and we're going to use that time to work out what season two is going to be like. Yeah. So thank you so much for joining us on this journey so far. And please um, share the show with people who you think would be into it. And catch us on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash how to save the world. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.